Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my dear friend, John Bissell, who is the CEO of Greylock Federal Credit Union, a $1.4 billion financial institution. John explains the role of credit unions and their mission to resist income and wealth inequality. And we talked about curiosity, always learning, and about his approach to building relationships. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am thrilled to welcome John Bissell, the CEO of Greylock Federal, a $1.4 billion CDFI LID credit union headquartered in Western Massachusetts. Get this. So John and I actually went to college together. So full disclosure, uh, he lived in the room next door to me freshman year. Uh, we were roommates sophomore year. Uh, I have to say, uh, it's it's so much fun to have John on because he is really, truly one of the most intelligent human beings I have ever encountered. He has gone on to lead a $1.4 billion financial institution in my hometown, no less. Uh, John Bissell, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, it's great to be here. It's good to see you, my friend. Likewise. So let's start with, you know, people don't know you, people don't, uh, anyone who knows you knows you have this kind of intellect that is almost intoxicating and that you have a way of reading people, that you can read a situation, you have a way of uh, reading data, whether it's presented to you in a spreadsheet or in uh, the ether, uh, and you have an incredible analytic mind. You have become a community leader. Uh, people who know you know that. But how do you, if you were people who don't know you, what's your story? Wow. I think I would rather have you tell it. You're doing a, a wonderful job of telling it. And I appreciate all those very, very kind words. Uh, my story really starts in Dalton, Mass. You grew up in Pittsfield. I grew up in the next door town of Dalton, Mass, a small small manufacturing town in Western Massachusetts. And I have to say, I still, I was and still count myself as one of the luckiest people around because I was born into a very supportive family, very stable household, had all the advantages of that growing up. Not a lot of wealth, but very solidly middle-class. And, um, and then my parents were generous enough to send me to one of the top colleges in the country where I, where I met you. So I've had a ton of family support along the way. And it is true. I grew up very curious and uh, I had some childhood illnesses that I think turned me into a stronger reader than I might otherwise have been. Um, a lot of my time as a young person was spent indoors and reading. Um, so when other people might've been doing other stuff. So that's probably fed that sort of intellectual hunger that you're, you're talking about. Uh, but that's, that's sort of the backstory. Um, I, I was a, actually a humanities major, majored in English lit at Amherst College. And then from there, tried my hand at marketing and PR and journalism and different things. And eventually uh, really realized what I wanted to do is strengthen community. That's what I was really focused on, building teams and strengthening community. And that path took me back home, back to uh, Western Mass. And I'm just privileged to be here 
And you came back to the Berkshires in 2003? Yeah, I came back in 2000. I went to work for Greylock in 2003. Yeah, my wife and I were in Seattle for 10 years, 1990 through 2000. And I had a great position in Seattle working for a large advertising and PR agency, a global agency. And they allowed me to move back here and, and telecommute for three years. Actually, there's a lot of time on airplanes for those three years. And then and then was uh, lucky enough to go to work for my hometown credit union in 2003. And is did, did you go back to be close to family? Yes, that's really what drew us back here. My parents are still here, still living in Dalton, just a stone's throw from the house I grew up in. Uh, two of my brothers live here, and the other brother lives in Eastern Mass. And Melissa, my wife, also has family in Eastern Massachusetts. So it's been a great place to raise our kids. And We've loved it, loved being back here. And I, I, I want to uh, find out how it is you went from uh, studying literature at Amherst College and uh, doing, if I recall correctly, a creative writing thesis uh, for your undergraduate thesis. And then you end up studying uh, finance at Babson College. And then along the way, while you're working full time, if, if, if I'm correct, uh, you managed to get an MBA uh, while you're climbing the ladder of this uh, mission-driven financial institution in, um, in, in Western Massachusetts. One of my daughters describes it as a series of happy accidents. I don't, that, that might be accurate. I mean, the way I experienced it was a lot of my classmates, including you, frankly, I think had really a clear picture of as they, as they graduated from undergraduate years, what they wanted to do next or where they were headed next. And I, I only had a vague sense that I wanted to be in journalism or teaching or something. And uh, so I sort of fumbled around for a while, did a lot of part-time jobs and uh, saw a good chunk of the country. And then ultimately my wife and I had started dating senior year of college. We connected and decided to move to Seattle in 1990 and just try to make a fresh start there and see where, where the path would take us. I, I obtained a, putting my writing skills to work for a, a division of McGraw-Hill initially. You know, that started me on this sort of, sort of journalism path. But, uh, you know, frankly, there were student loans to pay. And so I needed to figure out how to really take my skills and professionalize myself and make a contribution to in a meaningful position, relying on those communication skills. I'd have to say that for the first five or 10 years of my career, I kept being hired as a content provider of some sort, a writer, an editor. And then fairly soon, I would be placed into a management or supervisory role. And I found that confusing and a little bit frustrating. I kept uh, resisting that idea. And ultimately, though, I realized, well, maybe that's the thing, right? Maybe leading people is actually something I, I could be good at and stop resisting it and start learning it, how to, how to really do it. So you and I, we went to the same college, uh, and and so it's a place where you read a lot and you write a lot, yeah. and it's a great yeah. place to learn how to think and to learn right. to communicate. And and I would have guessed uh, because you had such a supple mind and you were su uh, are such a good communicator and such a good writer, I would have guessed you would have become a writer. I became sort of a writer. I often say I'm not a writer. I'm a typer. But um, not true. Not true. Well, well, I I type. Uh, but but um, but I, I I suspect that it's not unrelated that your uh, gifts as a thinker and as a communicator uh, kept causing your employers to put you into leadership roles. That I I'm guessing that's that's not an accident. 
I think that's true. I mean, I, I, like I said, it took me years to figure that out. Uh, but yeah, I think that's true. I think I, at the school that we both attended, we had to <laughs> read a lot, write a lot, communicate a lot, and, and basically form opinions a lot, right? And defend our positions a lot in small class settings. That was the blessing of being at, at that particular institution. And coming out, I think that prepared me really well to be in pretty much any kind of environment I would find myself in. I would try to figure out what's kind of what's the task at hand, what do we need to do to get there, what's my role in it. And then it's true that I found myself collaborating quickly with other people, maybe in a way that was um, managerial in style, if you will, not, not kind of telling them what to do, but supporting their success along with my own. And uh, I think that did contribute to it. So in hindsight, I guess it can look like a, a logical path. At the time, it probably didn't feel that way or look that way. Look, if you're, if you're making it up as you go along, which, you know, uh, frankly, uh, creative uh, entrepreneurial people often make it up as they go along. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it goes really well. The, the path looks logical in retrospect. It might not feel like right. along the way. I think the other thing, Bruce, is that I've always been a person who tries to figure out what's what's the system that's driving the system, kind of what's really under the hood of a particular situation. And that that has also served me well. I remember being in some business development roles very early in my career and learned that you had to figure out who's the who's the decision maker on the other end. I worked for a short time with a, an architectural firm in Seattle as a marketing person. And they had always, always, always wanted to get a, a project with one specific hospital in town. And so I studied the person who made that decision within that hospital system, just got to know as much as I could about it from the outside and started writing him letters, you know, to send him notes and say, hi, we, you know, this is, this is a little bit about our firm. I understand you're having a certain challenge and I think we could help you with that. And I didn't hear back from him for probably three or four months, but probably in about the fifth or sixth month, he called me and said, I am reading these letters, you know, why don't we sit down and talk? <laughs> and, and, and so you were making an impression and probably your letters were, were making more of an impression because you were speaking directly to this person based on what you were learning about him. Right. Instead of having sort of the typical generic mailer, you know, we did those too, but this was really a targeted effort to get to know this person, to get an audience with the person who's incredibly busy, wanted to value his time and show that we had done our homework. Yeah. And, it, you know, what you're, you're putting together, you know, I'm fond of saying uh, communication is the only real tool of leadership and that everybody's different. So you have to figure out how to tune into each right. person. So right. this is a really nice illustration of that point. Yeah, that's I love that that line again. It's quoted in your fabulous new book, and um, I think it's absolutely true. And again, I think that's probably if I have one, you know, strength, it is communications. There's a lot of things that I've had to surround myself with excellent lenders and finance people because I don't have those core strengths. They do, and I don't. But I think my one core strength is really communications. So yes, if, if that's the one tool of leadership and management, then I was lucky enough to like <laughs> have that one coming out into the world. You know, uh, I have the the privilege of and the advantage in this conversation um, compared to my conversations with other people that, you know, I've known you for a long time. And um, I, my observation is one of the things that makes you such an effective communicator is you're, you're so uh, observant and attentive that you, you, you listen, you watch, you pay attention 
to details and you're able to connect those details. So you're, you're really good at connecting with people. But I think the re and I think the reason is that you really, you, you, you pay attention. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. I, I try to, yeah, I mean, I do, I think you're right. I think that it, that is what makes the difference. And if you want to be a, a writer, a communicator, a marketer, which was my, my roots, the roots of my career, you have to think about your audience at a deep level. What do they care about? What is our shared care? Uh, what might motivate them to pay attention to what I'm trying to bring across? And if you, if I'm just speaking from inside my own head, then the message will fall flat. I have to kind of put myself in their head, think about what they're concerned about. And like you said, really pay, pay careful attention to, to you know, my surroundings, uh, the environment and so on. Yeah. I, I, I want to drill down on one word you used and draw a bright line under it because you, you said that you've always been very curious. Uh, there's, that, that, that's really a lovely concept and it's a, a, an incredible trait. And it means if you're really truly curious, then you enjoy paying attention. I, I think that's true. And I've, I've always read broadly and taken in information from lots and lots of different sources instead of just, you know, one or two types of channels or media. So as a kid, I read everything, right? I remember the Dalton Public Library during my, my time there, I kind of worked myself across the whole wall of the back of it. It was a tiny little library, but I remember working my way through all kinds of different fiction, science fiction, nonfiction, biography, history. And I'm still kind of that way, still very curious. I read, I'm still a faithful reader of National Geographic, believe it or not. That's what always been one of my favorite magazines. And I'm excited when that hits the doorstep. What's your opinion? Do you think that curiosity is something that comes naturally to people or is curiosity something that can be cultivated? Wow, that's a great question. I'm going to say I, I, I tend to think that most skills and attributes can be cultivated. I hesitate to believe that as soon as I start to think, well, this is fixed from birth, I meet someone where I, that's demonstrably untrue. So my, <laughs> so my general uh, thought is that people, people, when people figure out what really fires them up, then they will do what they need to do to succeed with that thing. Until they're fired up about something, they might not. So someone might go through life not feeling very curious, not wanting to read broadly or take in a lot of information until they need to, to get where they, they want to get. And then they will. Uh, they might need help to figure out how to do that or what sources to look at. I'm, I'm in a conversation with someone who's thinking about shifting careers from public service into the banking sector. You know, we, I would love to hire her. And she's asking me, what should I be reading? So, right. So she may not have read anything about banking or finance in the past, but now she's going to because now she's motivated to, to make a career shift. Um, it's just, you know, I, I think, look, so people can be ambitious. People can be very goal oriented. People yeah. can orient their their learning in, in goal oriented ways. I think yeah. curiosity is a powerful trait, though. It is. And it's it's tempting to say it's it's born in, you know, or, or there at birth. I really feel that for me that I've mentioned the, the childhood experiences that I had, I had to fill time. You know, I had severe asthma, so I couldn't run around in the New England winter uh, when I was very, very young. So I needed to fill the time. We didn't have a television. So that leads you to read everything in sight. And, um, you know, after I got past that illness, then I can be a, a much more physically active person. And that's wonderful. But I didn't lose that, that trait that I had. So. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's uh, something we have at birth or do you think it can be cultivated? What's your opinion on that? 
I mean, I'm a trainer and a consultant, so I uh, have a, a great stake in believing that human beings can be uh, changed. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's go with that. But you know, but but uh, in my search, um, I usually ask that question about integrity. Can integrity mm -hmm. be taught? Can mm -hmm. can uh, service orientation be taught? Can mission be taught? Curiosity is like gratitude. It's a core trait, and I I think it's 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 essential to character. Let let me let me shift gears, and because uh, I also know you have become a very mission driven person now. Uh, mm -hmm. um, of course, you had signs of that at, at an early age. Um, am I correct that you you were a Boy Scout? I was a Boy Scout. I was an Eagle Scout. That's right. See, I often tell people, you know, find yourself an Eagle Scout, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and and you know, you, you, there are certain things about about Eagle Scouts you can take. I would say to the bank, but I'm going to say to the credit union. There you go. I like that. I like the sound um, of that. So, so uh, uh, anyone who was an Eagle Scout as a young fellow, uh, of course, um, you know that says a lot. Um, but, but how important is mission uh, in your work now with your leadership of of this uh, 1.4 billion dollar financial institution? It's a credit union. Uh, mm -hmm. I've had the privilege to work for some credit unions. But how how important is mission to you in your leadership of this institution? Bruce, mission is everything. I mean, with, if we don't have a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, then we are—we have to earn. We're a not-for-profit non, financial cooperative, and in my opinion, what I tell our team is, we have to earn that nonprofit designation every day. So our sense of mission is what allows us to do that. Uh, we offer a lot of the same services that a for-profit bank offers, but what sets us apart is that sense of mission. In our case, you know, we serve Western Massachusetts, upstate New York, Southern Vermont. And it's a beautiful part of the world. It's a beautiful part of the country. But there's also a lot of rural poverty here. There's a lot, there's vast income and wealth inequality here. And for us to fulfill our mission, we have to wake up every day just totally committed to it. There's a lot of challenge in helping resist income and wealth inequality in our region. So we have to be really passionate about it. And we have to, we have to be on our A game every day, frankly, to get the work done. And um, so for people who don't understand um, the difference between a credit union and a bank, can you do a yeah. super executive summary? I'll do a quick one. Yeah. So in the Great Depression, the credit union model existed in other countries, specifically in, in Europe and in Canada in the early late 1800s, early 1900s. But in the, in the United States, the credit union model really came to fruition around the Great Depression. That's when Congress implemented the Federal Credit Union Act. And the goal was to have a separate parallel and stable banking option at a time when traditional commercial banking was paralyzed. We all know that in the Great Depression, the banking system really seized up. There were bank failures left and right. And the not-for-profit cooperative structure had been successful in other countries in offering a stable not-for-profit choice. And so my credit union was born in 1935 as the Pittsfield GE Employees Credit Union. And you'll find a lot of credit unions were born in between 1935 and 1940 in, you know, all over the country, many of them with an industrial base like that one or a church sponsor or something like that. So the whole the difference between us and a for-profit bank is, number one, we're not-for-profit. Number two, our board is volunteer, and our board comes from within the membership. And number three, it is really that sense of mission. There's some really well-run community banks here. There's some really well-run commercial banks here. 
but frankly, we serve a clientele that it's not, it doesn't really fit their business model to serve a lot of the folks that we serve. People with credit challenges, people who are low income, those kinds of folks. So serving people with credit challenges, people who are low income, is that what you mean by financial inclusion? That is a huge part of financial inclusion, yes. So our financial system, broadly speaking, was designed to be exclusive, right? Uh, the reason the banking system wasn't functioning well in the 1930s was that it had been designed to provide credit to people who already had money. And uh, when the whole thing collapsed, uh, there was no motive to reach out more broadly across the community and help people out. So uh, in our case, financial inclusion to us means we are a pathway for folks to fully participate in the economy, fully participate in the financial system, no matter what their income level, no matter what their credit score, we find a way to serve them, find a way to connect them into the financial system. And because for a lot of those folks, there's not much profit in that relationship, but we're okay with that. Got it. And uh, because you, and, and uh, if I may say, so you took over as CEO in 2015, um, if, if my memory serves, the scope of the credit union was not $1.4 when you took over. Yeah, we've grown since that time. Yeah, that's true. We're not fixated on asset growth, but I think we've grown because we've been more inclusive. And so if I, you asked about financial inclusion. I'll tell you one, one story that to me really explains the whole concept. You know our uh, our roots as the Pittsfield GE Employees Credit Union. You recall the part of Pittsfield where the big GE plant was. There were ten or twelve thousand jobs there, huge buildings, lots of infrastructure, and that was the original headquarters dating back to the 1970s. That all of that GE infrastructure is gone. Right, there's a big open lot where that was. It's a brownfield site. It's being redeveloped now. That's the good news. The bad news is all those jobs are gone. But the credit union building was still there. It was still an operating branch. But you could look at the membership numbers for decades going down and down and down and down. When GE pulled out of here and vanished in the 90s, um, that membership associated with that original branch had really declined. We recently, in 2019, we put $4 million into the building. It's beautiful now. And half of it is a community empowerment center. It's specifically aligned to providing financial coaching financial education. Uh, we have bilingual folks working there. It's really, uh, there's a tremendous amount of community outreach and welcoming. We have member financial education classes there. And as a result, the membership of that branch has started to grow for the first time in 20 or 30 years. So that's just an example of how we're doing the right thing for the community, but it also powers up our growth as well. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a great, uh, uh, that's a great story. Um, and uh, so let's see. So when you showed up at Greylock in 2003, you were not really a finance guy, right? I definitely was not. No, I was hired to oversee marketing and HR. And I did have skills in those areas, but no, I did not have a background in finance or banking. I had been in, I'd done some consulting work for financial institutions around their communications and PR, but no, I didn't have any deep understanding of it. But you were drawn to the area, you were drawn to the credit yeah. union because uh, it was your sense of mission and your right. mission-driven organization. Also, it looked like, I'm guessing uh, that, you know, it was a good job, but it wasn't, you weren't like the CEO of a one point no. billion dollar institution. So <laughs> what, So between 20, 2003 and was, how much was a curiosity that led you to say, gee, 
all these people are doing finance. Maybe I better learn about that. <laughs> well, I had the, the great privilege always to work with excellent teams at Greylock. We've hired fantastic people over the years, and we've always had a top-notch board of directors. So those, and I've learned an enormous amount from all of those folks. And I go back to that curiosity of wanting to know what's the system behind the system, like what's under the hood, why does this matter? In, in trying to help lead the marketing, the HR, and the community outreach for Greylock, I had to know a certain amount about how the engine runs, right? What matters most. If, if we are able to develop uh, more auto loans, you know, how will that help the balance sheet, things like that? And frankly, uh, while I had a lot to learn and I still have a lot to learn, the, the retail banking model, the credit union business model is very simple. It's not, it's not a really complex structure. Um, you can grasp the basics pretty readily. And I did, took accounting classes and all the things to be able to read the financial statements accurately. But um, I was able to pick up the basics pretty quickly and then fill in an awful lot of blanks later by taking those MBA classes that you talked about. Yeah, I just, I, I wonder what, you know, because you, yeah. you could say, well, you were already an executive here. You're already uh, on your way to the top. Uh, what, why, uh, uh, why drive an hour uh, to, to the University of Massachusetts and, you know, take MBA classes in the middle of your, what, what were you in your, your 40s, right? Yeah, I was. Yep. Yeah, I, I also had the uh, great privilege of anyone on the executive team who I would ask questions of and sit down with in that curious way that I brought to the role. They were always generous with their time. I recall a, an individual who used to be our CFO and it was typical that he and I would be in there on a Saturday morning, it was quiet. And I would just go down and ask him three questions like every Saturday and he'd patiently walk me through it. You know, the what's and why's of the, the balance sheet, the PNL, the investments. And I learned a ton from him and from a lot of other folks too. It wasn't, you weren't learning secretly uh, going to get the MBA. You were also <laughs> also, also lear learning in plain sight by oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. asking questions. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a certain amount of vulnerability there, right? Here you show, I was hired as a vice president, but for whatever reason, I wasn't afraid to ask the dumb questions, you know, that, that maybe would embarrass somebody else to ask, but that's just my nature. I find sometimes people who aren't that smart think that learning in plain sight makes you look stupid, but people who are really smart and knowledgeable know that uh, people who are smart and knowledgeable do a lot of learning and they keep learning. So it's okay, <laughs> right, right. It's okay to learn in plain sight. I'm a big believer in that. Absolutely. Um, and so, okay. So um, take us through, I know also somewhere along the, the, the way, you also began really uh, contributing to the community, which, you know, just again, for full disclosure, my dad still lives in Pittsfield. My brother mm -hmm. lives there. My sister lives in Williamstown. I am a native of Pittsfield. I get the news, as it were. And uh, so I, I know you're, you're doing a lot uh, contributing to the community. And how much is that part of what drives you? And, and is it is that because you're leading um, a community uh, financial institution, um, or is is it the same thing that has you leading a, a mission-driven financial institution? Is that the same thing that has you wanting to be involved in in in, in the community in in these other ways and we're serving on boards and so on? I think it's all part of the same thing, and it's something that was really brought home to. To me as a kid, my parents always volunteered. I remember my dad 
suffered from terrible hay fever, but I remember him going down to load hay on a rail car that was headed for a flood zone in the south or something like that. He came home, you know, really uncomfortable from his hay fever, but he had put in hours loading up this. He was an electrical engineer for GE, but he decided he was going to spend his Saturday morning down there volunteering. And my mom, you know, until pre-COVID was still volunteering in her 80s at the, the food bank in Dalton. So it's just something that's just the way I was raised is that you're constantly looking for ways to strengthen the community. And um, so I think it just comes from that same place, both my interest in leading this mission driven institution and the various volunteer roles that I have. I think they both come from that same place. How would you describe your approach to building relationships? And uh, because look, you know, it'd be easy. Here you are now. You're in the driver's seat, right? You're you're the leader. You're the boss. Uh, I find, you know, my experience as a as a, a consultant to CEOs that they have have a pretty easy making friends, pretty easy time making friends. You know, <laughs> right, right. You know? Um, and uh, and and of course, all the boards want you involved because you're you're leading this financial institution. But but I I knew you when you were uh, just a kid, and uh, you were also really good at building relationships then. And um, so, what's your approach to building relationships? I think I look for what is our mutual interest. I'll give you an example of why why I also think I'll never be done building relationships. You kind of implied a minute ago to CEO, you can sort of coast now, right? I've got all the relationships I need, but you, you, uh, you can't, you can't just, if yeah. you didn't know this, yeah. now you're the CEO, you, you can coast on when it comes to relationships, they'll be knocking yeah. on your door. You do not need to seek them out anymore. So I love what you're saying. And I totally disagree with it. So, <laughs> so I think to the extent that I do that, I will stop growing and my institution will stop adapting, right? It's up to me to set the example for relationship building. We tell, I, I uh, participate in the onboarding of every single new employee. And I emphasize to them that this institution is all about relationships. We do millions of transactions a year, but anyone can do transactions. Any bank, you know, Wells Fargo can do transactions. That's not why people come here. They come here because they want a place that they can trust. And trust is all about relationships. So as an example of how I need to never stop building relationships, one of our biggest challenges right now is doing a better job serving communities of color. This is something the US financial system has done dreadfully over the past couple hundred years. It's, a, it's really a disaster how, how the US financial system has treated people of color. And for us to do a better job here, we need to build trust between our institution and leaders within the black and brown communities of, of our region. So I've put a lot of time and effort into that over the last 10 years, and I'm gratified to say that there is a strong network of black leaders who've trusted me, who've mentored me, and we are now in a much better place than we were. But that's I'm, I will never be done investing in that process with them and, and earning their trust. And that allows us, again, it's, yes, it allows us to grow, but more than that, it allows us to meet our mission. That's really our job, is to serve everyone who's here. And if we're excluding certain folks, that's it's it's wrong. And it's also not our job. Our job is to figure out how to serve them, to take down the barriers that exist. And I, you know, I I, I like what you're saying a lot. And I my view is that even if you're not in a position of power, that whatever uh, wherever you are, that serving others is a heck of a way to um, 
to approach relationships that so many people yeah. the way they approach relationships is right you know what can you do for me right but right. it turns out that uh when you approach relationships uh in terms of hey here's what i can do for you there's a different kind of dynamic well there's a different kind of dynamic and i thought your one of the earliest chapters in your new book on influence i thought was just brilliant and you've really brought that out that the way to gain influ influence is something you have because other people want you to have it right and the way to acquire it is by serving them i just thought that's a elegant way to put it and i thought that whole chapter is is, is worth its weight in gold so and if you apply that at the community level i think it could be observed that i have a certain amount of quote unquote influence in the community now you're a yeah. person of great influence. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the uh, as a guest on the podcast is because you are a person of such great influence. But I don't think you're out there influence peddling. I don't think you're out Not there right. trying to squeeze people. The reason right. you have so much influence is because of the way you show up, because of the way you treat people, and because of the because you really do approach relationships from the standpoint of service. I believe that i i hope that's true um humble enough to want that to be true <laughs> but and i also think it just is true that there are people who have a lot more authority than i do in this community right they control more resources they have loftier titles but but i'm not sure how much influence some of them have how much trust that they've built you know and i i i so I'm so grateful for the relationships that I do have. It's really, uh, but it's about the community. When I became CEO of this 90,000 person community credit union, what struck me was I now belong to them. Like I have 90,000 bosses. As a not-for-profit financial cooperative, anyone who has an account with us is literally an owner. They're a shareholder in the institution. I took a call last night from someone who's irritated about a direct mail piece that he got. It wasn't from us, but it had our name on it. And he's calling me at 6.30 at night. I'm going to take that call. I'm going to explain the situation to him and uh, try to help him feel better about things, even though we had nothing to do with it. Yeah, and I'm guessing that the way you went about that was to do a lot of listening first. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, I think, look, you know, sometimes the way I uh, summarize real influences are other people rooting for you, you know? Yeah, there you go. That's a great, great way to look <laughs> at know, it, yeah. Or are they like, you know, are, do they look at you and think, wow, you, I want you to have less power? Or are they looking <laughs> at you and thinking, I want you to have more power? Yeah, well, it's a great way to put it. And in our case, for us to really fulfill our mission, we cannot do it alone. We can do the the banking part. We are the leading provider of mortgage loans and auto loans here by a lot. But for us to really fulfill our mission, we have to work in partnership with the health system, the educational system, the transportation system, every system. And you don't do that from the standpoint, you build those partnerships through influence and through trust building. That's the only way that we can take what we do well and leverage it through all the things that they do well, create networks with other nonprofits, and really help the community to thrive. That's our vision statement, that we enable our community to thrive. And and you certainly have that reputation and the institution has that reputation. What, what do you tell someone who who doesn't go into a room where you know their reputation precedes them, they, they, they represent an institution with a reputation that precedes them, that, that they're starting fresh? What's your advice to people? Like, how do you how do you go about winning influence with people and showing them 
your colors, as it were, you know. Uh, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm doing a great job of answering your question, but your, your question makes me think of a, when I moved back here in 2000, when I came, first went to work for Greylock in 2003. So from the first time I went to work for Greylock in 2003, I was regularly attending networking events in, in my hometown. And most of the folks here have been part of these networking circles for decades, the Chamber of Commerce, the Rotary Club, et cetera. I had grown up here, but been away for years and years and to just come back and knew very few of these business folks. So literally entering rooms full of people who all knew each other, and I, didn't, I knew a handful of them. What I tended to do was approach the person who didn't have anyone to talk to, the person who's kind of off by themselves, not feeling connected, and I would just talk to them for a while. And in a networking event like that, inevitably, somebody else would sort of gravitate over to figure out what the conversation was about. And now you're, I'm introducing these two people to each other. And uh, I did that a few times unintentionally, and then that kind of became my strategy. Well, and, and there's, you know, that's a great strategy. That's actually, uh, I've got goosebumps because I can just see you doing that. And what I love about it is there's a wisdom to it, but there's also a real kindness to that. Yeah, I mean, this, I'm, I'm trying to help this person connect with other people in the room. I, I, I'm, fair, I'm very gregarious. I know that eventually I will know. I know all of them now, but this particular person might not be having as much success with networking. So, you know, let's talk. And, uh, and yeah, over time, that, that kind of became my thing. Yeah. Great advice to yeah. anyone who uh, is starting fresh. And that's, uh, that's a great answer because it's very tactical. It's very actionable. And I think the same, even in the COVID times, we were just on Zoom all the time and whatnot. That strategy still works. I had someone reach out to me from a much, much smaller institution. His entire institution is smaller than one of my branches. But I've now spent five or six hours with this gentleman just because I really respect him. I can see the challenges he's up against. And um, I'll spend whatever time we need to, to help him make the decisions he's trying to make. So let me ask, um, uh, do you have an elevator-sized uh, uh, set of career advice that if, how do I get to be like John Bissell? How does somebody get oh boy. like you? <laughs> wow. Always yeah. be curious. Never, never have an insatiable curiosity. That's an excellent quality to cultivate. If you don't already have it, you should cultivate that. Always build trust. Like go out of your way to build trust. And if you're ever in a situation where you're starting to bend or break trust, change it. Don't let that happen because it's so it takes forever to build it and you can break it overnight. Surround yourself with people that have integrity and ask a lot of questions. You know, find the people who you really respect and just ask their advice, ask questions. It doesn't matter what their title is. I get great advice, great wisdom from our tellers, from our loan officers every day. Um, some of the most, the deepest insights I have into how our business is really going come from those frontline folks. So always demonstrate respect to folks, no matter what their, their role in life is. I think if you do those things and just follow what you're really interested in, life is too short to do something you really don't like for too, too long. And as challenging as the job market is right now, there's always a market for really talented folks. So if you haven't found the thing that really fires you up, keep looking, keep searching, keep asking. Keep looking for it. John Bissell, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you for having me, Bruce. It's been a real pleasure. Congratulations on the new book. It's spectacular. Oh, that's very kind of you. 
In our next episode, I talk with James Ferrara, co-founder and president of IntelliTravel, the world's longest running and largest travel host agency. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.